Hello and welcome to this Living in Love and Faith podcast in which we'll be pondering the many moods and ways of expressing the wide embrace of love, the sustaining divine life force, to quote Dylan Thomas, that through the green fuse drives the flower. How are we to love authentically, not just in committed relationships, but as believers in the inclusive ideal of, as the old 19th century Scottish hymn puts it, the love that will not let me go, that same love which the Church of England upholds and extends to every human being. As individuals in perhaps different stages of identity and sexuality, how might we all pay heed to John Milton's line from Paradise Lost? To love or not, in this we stand or fall. Eternal love is there, at our mortal going out and coming in as Psalm 121 instructs. But it's a love that requires, back to Milton, the diligent requirements of fidelity and self-restraint. My name is Stuart Henderson, I'm a poet, broadcaster and songwriter, as we ask, what's the conversation? A story about ways of human loving. The Reverend Canon Giles Goddard is vicar of St John's Church, Waterloo, on London's South Bank, where he served this innovative cross-cultural church since 2009. An honorary canon of Southwark Cathedral, he studied theology at Clare College, Cambridge, adding a further degree from King's College, London. Prior to ordination, Giles was director of the Southwark and London Diocesan Housing Association and is the author of Space for Grace, Creating Inclusive Churches. The Right Reverend Dr Jill Duff has been the Bishop of Lancaster since 2018. She was educated at Christ College Cambridge and Worcester College Oxford. She was ordained to the priesthood in 2004 with her ministerial training at Wycliffe Hall. For several years, from 2003 onwards, Jill served in the Liverpool Diocese in various capacities, including as curate, pioneer minister and theological educator. The Right Reverend Beverly Mason was consecrated Bishop of Warrington in the Diocese of Liverpool in the autumn of 2018. Following school, she worked in the financial sector in Germany and London. During a gap year in 1994, she came to faith whilst backpacking in Africa. Bev studied theology at Chichester University, followed by ordination training at Trinity College Bristol, and prior to Warrington was Archdeacon of Richmond of Craven in the new Diocese of Leeds. Now, what we hear in our formative years may well shape how we understand love in all its broadest forms. It's the experience that counts. But as the LLF book puts it, how we may experience love can be unrecognisable in comparison to God's intention. Giles Goddard, off the back of that, marriage is cited as a mirroring of God's love to humankind. What words would you use to describe God's love to humankind? Oh, what a huge question. I think um, because you mentioned marriage, um, one of the first words that comes into my head is constancy and uh, the sense that God is always there. God is waiting for us to turn to God. That's right at the heart of everything, really, that we're doing. 
but I want to say challenging as well because you know it's not easy both to receive but also to to interpret the love of God so constancy challenging and I think generous as well there's always that sense that however often you fall God's waiting to pick you up again and let you walk forward the idea that God's love is the template for how we should see human love underpins much of our current thinking about marriage but the LLF book also affirms that not marrying is not a restriction to abundant life. How, how do you see that? People are called in all sorts of different ways to live fully. In my own experience, you know, I, I, I didn't enter into my civil partnership until I was in my, um, well, mid-50s, really. And for a long time, you know, I was single. And there are so many different ways in which one can be fully yourself um, and a lot of it depends on who we are who we meet how we understand God what we understand our call to be the great thing about human diversity is that you know all of us have different relationships with one another and with God and the important thing is that we all explore in prayer and move forward in whichever direction we're called I mean in terms of sexuality and lesbian and gay people there's been a kind of talk about requiring celibacy, which I think can be deeply destructive. But the church hasn't affirmed singleness and celibacy in any kind of creative way, apart from within the institution of monasticism. And I think that's been a great loss. Bev Mason. I wholly agree with Giles uh, in this area. Uh, so at Theological College, um, it was a well-known saying, you're either um, a smug married or a sad single. Uh, and I think that that really just captured the flavour of, of um, this um, inability to understand, to grasp the complexities of relationship, of love, of vocation even, what people are being called to. For the single people who were looking for and who hungered for a relationship, the sad singles was referred to very glibly, but actually it was excruciatingly painful. So there's a lot of woundedness in how we engage with or don't engage with relationships and with love. Just leading on from that, Bev, um, the, the book does affirm the essential disciplines of Christian living, the, the rules of life to which the chapter refers. What are, what are those rules of life for you? There are some rules of life that um, that will sustain the um, the disciplines of what it is to be a Christian. So um, I, I wouldn't be forgiven for this if I didn't mention the Liverpool rule of life, which is to pray, read, learn, to deal with the inner life, and then look at the outer life, um, which is to tell, serve, give. For myself, um, as uh, speaking as a celibate priest. Um, I called to the celibate life 25 years ago now, mm -hmm. so I'm celebrating my jubilee. Um, I think you get a year off uh, <laughs> in the year of jubilee, so I'm looking forward to that. Very early, very early on, I was um, put in touch with a religious community, a Benedictine community. Uh, Benedictines are renowned for, for being anchored in a place. Uh, and ha holding on to a rule of life, encouraging a rule of life. So for me, that's been um, incredibly important and it's sustained me through, throughout my calling. So the kind of thing that um, you know, I have in my rule of life is a commitment uh, that I make, a, a recommitment every day to, um, to, to what it is to be living the single life. I'm reminded every day uh, of, the, um, of the need to dedicate myself to the service of Christ 
uh, in the service of others, in the service of the church and the world. Jill, how, how, how do you exercise that, that radical honesty? By being married. <laughs> it's interesting that um, uh, living closely with one other person brings out... Uh, the best in you, <laughs> and maybe the things that aren't quite as good, really. So uh, it's an interesting um, in dynamic. Um, it's interesting that rule of life is not a word I would use. I would talk about, I try to live as much of my life in the presence of Jesus and try to um, keep my eyes fixed on him. For me, there's beautiful lines in the Song of Songs that talks about when of, of knowing him while you're sleeping. But uh, keeping a guard on my mind, keeping a guard on my heart, keeping a guard to keep trying to keep focused on him as much as possible. And um, I do um, a retreat once a month. Um, I had a day last week. For me, I find a day a month is essential um, to connecting. And I'll try and spend some time in silent prayer every day. Um, depend, it depends on... I have a, two boys, teenage boys, so it's not always... Um, as perhaps as easy to get a handle on when that happens. But for me, silence and um, a sense of trying to be in the presence of God uh, is, is vital. Jill Duff, the New Testament tells us that Jesus was nurtured within an earthly marriage, making Jesus part of his family's human story. But then we read in the Gospels of Mark and John of Jesus as the bridegroom, with his bride being the church of all believers. C can you unpack some of the symbolism around marriage that exists in the New Testament, please? A point to start would be Jesus' teaching on marriage, that he would say from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, and for this reason a man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. And I think there's something quite foundational in how Jesus saw marriage, that it was a, a creation ordinance. And um, this, this bit about leaving your parents is often lost in translation, isn't it? And I, I think there's something important about that. Um, yeah, Jesus used the image of the, the bridegroom, didn't he, as, as, an, uh, as a way of speaking about himself, and that's very much picked up in the epistles. Um, it's been very much picked up in the mystics, actually. We've, I've been reading quite a bit of the 14th century mystics, these English mystics this summer. And uh, they're the sense of um, that Jesus is our bridegroom and that, that the love and the desire for, him, for us that he has is like a, um, a bridegroom for his wife. But that sense of his love for the church being so great that he gave his life for her, um, I found I just find incredibly profound. Really, it's used. Paul speaks about that as, as a model for uh, husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church. Uh, just incredible. Jesus had incredibly. Um, he offered incredibly high standards, I suppose, or great potentials of what things could be, and at the same time, he managed to be so welcoming to everybody. I, I find that so compelling. I, I was struck when reading the chapter in the LLF book of the one flesh turned outwards, suggesting that marriage, although exclusive for the couple, is also a symbol of serving others, to underline what you've just said. How does that relate to the work of the church, do you think? Well, in the, in the marriage service, there's a talk of um, the husband and wife um, 
creating a way of um, stability for the community and the hospitality to welcome people into. That's been something that's within Christian tradition, but also outside the tradition as well, is the stability of a family unit is quite key for the stability of society. It's less fashionable to talk about that today, but um, I think there's something quite compelling. And you spoke earlier on about our early experiences of love can very much affect how we set a pattern in our lives, really, can't they? And all my ministry before becoming a bishop was in livable diocese and often quite... Um, T- tough areas in, in many ways and uh, it was sort of sometimes heartbreaking to to encounter people who hadn't encountered l- love of, um, as even quite little children and how that impact impacted them every day of their lives going forward. Can I come on in here with the um, with with the, the language of marriage uh, and uh, and the way God uses or the way it's used in the, in the Bible? I really love this imagery uh, and it it really. Um, it's 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 the in a sense it's the meta narrative I think uh, right across the Bible so we hear it in the the Old Testament among the prophets uh, and the New Testament and the Gospels and uh, and right in, at the very end you have the last book in the Bible which is the culmination of um, of the marriage and who is the marriage between it's between God and His people and right at the beginning you have this uh, amazing kind of um, uh, in, in, in the ceiling of a covenantal relationship between God and his people, it almost takes the form of, uh, of, of uh, a marriage. And, um, and so it, what happens as you, you trace this throughout the Bible, you keep coming back to the question, what does it mean? What does it mean to be in this marital relationship with God? What does the covenant mean? And the covenant is about, um, it's, it's just rooted and shaped uh, and designed by love, the love of God for God's people. There's a line from Shakespeare, um, uh, Romeo and Juliet, of course, why would it not be Romeo and Juliet? Speaking of love, the more I give to thee, the more I have for both are infinite. And there's something about love that uh, the more we give, the more we have. When we're kids, we're brought up on silly stories like the person never runs out of money. But actually, really, a, a more a more apposite a motif would have been the heart that never runs out of love, whereby, in a sense, we don't have to worry about ourselves. We are really important, but if if our needs are being met in the other, um, then our needs are being met. Picking up on that, that the that idea of infinite love mm. and the marriage ideal, a committed relationship ideal of the church's teaching, the divine union. Why do you think it's often difficult to explain that to a, for want of a better description, a secular society? Because it's wrong, um, basically. Um, that's a big thing to say, so I shall unpack it a little bit. But um, I was brought up to expect that I was going to get married, and then I realised in my mid-teens that that wasn't going to be an option because I was gay. And I spent about 30 or 40, well, about 30 years, I guess, being unmarried. And... You know, however hard you try, you always feel kind of slightly as though you've failed, I think, or I certainly did. Um, and that's always something you kind of have to deal with. I met my, my, my partner Shannon about 10 years ago, and for nine years we were together, but we didn't have any kind of public affirmation of it. I mean, we did, you know, Shannon was very involved in the church and stuff, and our families are very supportive and all that, but we never had anything which actually kind of affirmed it before God. And then last year we had 
a service of thanksgiving for our civil partnership. We were careful that it was a civil partnership because that's all I'm really allowed to do as a clergy person. And for a long time after that, we were careful to talk about being civil partners. But we've kind of given up on talking about civil partners now. And we talk about being married because that's effectively what the thing was. And the point that I want to make is that that service changed everything. That changed everything. It changed the way we understand each other. It changed the way our relationship was understood by the church. It changed the way our families affirmed us and were part of it. You know, they were great before, but there's something about feeling that you've done something in public. You've made those vows in front of the community, in front of your community and in, and to one another, which really feels as though God was brought into the relationship in a very profound way. Jill started by saying, you know, it's one man, one woman, one flesh. Well, I think the question as has been asked in the whole LLF process is, is the question of not what marriage is, but who may be married. Because um, I think we're all agreed that marriage is about constancy, it's about fidelity, it reflects the love of God for the church, it reflects the love of God for the world. But the question is whether that can be for people of the same gender or whether they're excluded from that. So, you know, somebody, a couple came into the church a couple of years ago and they said, we want you to marry us. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't. And they went away and they never came back. Um, and that's a real shame. It's a, it's a heartbreak to me, particularly when I have personal understanding of the way that this is very crucial to my relationship. And I'm so thankful that we've been able even to do the civil partnership. Alongside the theology and the mystical aspects of the marriage state, the LLF book places an equal emphasis on the positive call to singleness, mm, affirming yeah. this celibate vocation as a gift from God. Bev Mason, can you help us with the New Testament theology of celibacy as lived out by Jesus and the Apostle Paul and other early followers. Yeah, uh, um, we have every good reason to believe that Jesus was not married. Uh, we have every good reason that St. Paul wasn't married. There have been subsequent um, or very many theories since the first century as to the truth of this. But uh, most scholars uh, would believe that uh, and would hold to the fact that neither were married. And we hear uh, Jesus is castigated. You, you know, a throwaway comment is, you know, he hangs around with prostitutes. Uh, were there was prostitutes or were they women that he was with? Uh, is there, are there assumptions? You know, we're, we're very snidey, aren't we, and snipey with some of the comments we make. If we're, if we're wanting to vilify someone, we'll find something that we can, we can throw at them. Uh, and, and all kinds of insults uh, were hurled. And interestingly, we don't hear that same kind of vilification of Paul, which raises questions, you know, was Paul a widower? Uh, was he someone who was betrothed? Uh, and because of his conversion to Christianity, actually, uh, Tom Wright comes up with a theory that it might very well have been that uh, the, the um, betrothal uh, had to be broken. Um, because Paul was going down another pathway. He was pursuing the Christ. In the epistles, we, we'll hear um, St. Paul speaking about um, the place of marriage um, and celibacy. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is a very well-known scriptural text exhorting the church to be faithful to the calling they're called to. So if you're called into a marital relationship, to be faithful, to honour each other. Uh, man, honour your wife, uh, husband, honour your wife, wife, honour your husband, meet each other's needs. Uh, and there's a strong inference that this is a physical um, e exhortation. 
St. Paul speaks about um, celibacy and he says, you know, people, if you can all be like me, that's great. Um, it was quite a bold thing to say, really, isn't it? But, um, but he, he, he's, you know, he says this. Uh, and for me, what is so important when we come to, to the scriptures and we come to a faith lived out is how are we listening to God? What is God saying to us? You know, I can draw on a text that, that meant so much to me. And yet if I had said this uh, in scholarly company, they would think, I would, the scholars would think I was bonkers. The text, Isaiah 54 um, and verse 1, um, it, it goes like this, Sing, barren woman, you, you who never bore a child, burst into song, um, shout for joy, you, you who were never in labor, because more, more um, are the children of the desolate woman than, than her who has no husband, or than her who has a husband. Um, f- for me, this this text, when it was at a time when I was wrestling, Lord, are you really calling me to this life? This is not what I anticipated for myself. Somewhere uh, in, in the corridor of time, I anticipated there would be a spouse and there would be children. And so this pathway I, I, I found myself on, I could hear deep speaking to deep and this sense of stir and draw. But it wasn't imposed. God doesn't do that. It's almost like a courtship. I'm nervous of the language of the mystics. It's beautiful language of, of, of the bride, um, us and, and, and Christ as the groom. But I, I get a little bit nervous about the, the, the kind of the sense of erotica that that, that can evoke. And, and I'm not sure that's altogether helpful. Um, but there is something about the covenantal relationship of love where, where God woos us and speaks deep to deep uh, in in words that are so, so steeped in love, um, and and it's an invitation. If I was called to a celibate life, twenty six years ago, it it made no sense. Twenty five, I was wrestling with it. Am I hearing right? Is this what God is saying? And then um, scriptural texts would leap from the page, uh, and speak to me in a fresh and new and life giving way, that I was able to hear God speaking through the texts. When we're listening to God, it's, it's always wise to have a companion who you can talk to and share thinking with. Can I come in on the prostitutes um, on yeah. Scripture? Yeah. I, think, I think they really, really were prostitutes. And I notice, um, uh, say, Luke 7 and, and the similar text in Mark, is that Jesus really had a pati- an interesting relationship with women, that the woman came in and she wept over his, um, his feet and wiped them with her hair. And... Um, I think there was a sense of revulsion from the Pharisees um, in the house that they were they were meeting, and so I'm intrigued by um, by the way he related to women in all their sexuality. There's often actually been suppressed, I think, through um, through yeah. our culture, and I could give a lecture on that if there was a moment in this podcast. But um, Jesus wasn't afraid of sexuality in a way that we um, can tend to project. Yeah, and, and I would, I mean, what I would. I think it would be disingenuous to think that um, um, there's any sense of being afraid when I raise it as a caution. You know, I, I believe God needs to be God. Um, you know, God isn't, you know, G- Jesus walked the face of the earth as a man. And so does that mean if you love Jesus and you're a woman, you're being drawn into a kind of a physical relationship with, with him that, you know, will be consummated on the last days? Or, or what if you're a man and you're in love with, with Jesus? What's the relationship there? You know, I think it can all become terribly confused. And I, I've just 
flag that I, I think as a caution but the the intimacy of of calling and relationship um, is is crucial and and I totally agree with you that the relationship Jesus has with women you, you know I can imagine uh, the woman at the well um, you know the people who are going to be speaking disparagingly of this woman who is the first first and great evangelist of the church I can imagine some people speaking disparagingly saying oh that old tart you know, or that, yeah, prostitute, five husbands. I don't dispute the fact that Jesus um, um, was in the company of prostitutes as he was in the company of, of all kinds of people that others might look disdainfully towards. Um, but the relationship, um, the, the broader relationship between, between Jesus and woman, I think is, it's all, I mean, you know, the, 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 the man who walked upon the face of the earth as God incarnate is just so compelling uh, from ever which way you look at him. Jesus wasn't afraid of women's sexuality, but I think he probably also wasn't afraid of men's sexuality either. I mean, I think, you know, the, 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 remember that the Gospels were written by straight men, probably, although, of course, we can't be sure of that. Um, and using straight in that sense in the first century as a huge anachronism all that you know take take all that into account but um you know i don't think jesus was afraid of sexuality full stop one of my favorite lines in the bible is when the rich young man comes to him and says what shall i do to be saved and the rich um, jesus says well follow the commandments he says i do all that what else shall i do and jesus looked at the man and loved him i mean i just love that and jesus looked at the man and loved him um so i think jesus you know, as God incarnate, he understands, he understands the wholeness of the people he's engaged, engaged with, regardless of their gender. Um, but it's obviously described slightly differently in the Gospels because of, you know, the context of the time. I think the people who were afraid of sexuality is the early church. Uh, now, the church has had a complicated relationship with sexuality right from the very beginning, really from St. Paul. But I don't think that reflects Jesus's approach, really. I don't think it's the Jesus approach. I think it's our approach to mm. Jesus that I have the question really? with. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that... yeah, I mean, we, obviously we weren't there, but yeah. So, but even yeah. today, Giles, I think that, you know, that Jesus loves us in the fullness of what love means. How we respond, that, that just can raise questions, I think. Yeah, I mean, well, we're all called to fullness of life, aren't we? Which we find in different ways. And it's, but um, it's how we express love, lo- you know, not all love. Mm as some people would interpret it, is good love. But that's the point, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's why we're involved in this whole process of living in love and faith. We've, we're trying to kind of work out what good love is and how the church yeah. can affirm and encourage people to live and love well. Yeah. Um, that's why we're having this conversation. But yeah, and it's gone wrong so many times in so many it's, different uh, ways. It's excruciating when you hear a parent who has abused a child saying, but I love my child. Mm. Mm. Uh, and yet their their interpretation, mm. their understanding of love had become so so distorted and perverted. Yeah. Picking up on what Bev said uh, about imposition as opposed to freedom of choice, there is an ongoing debate referenced in the chapter about whether celibacy is the only appropriate expression for individuals within the LGBT plus community. Is the church's teaching on sexual abstention then more to do with, how to put it, nervous imposition rather than a compassionate understanding of the human loving desire 
for sexual expression. Giles. Kind of words fail me about the church's teaching at the moment and the way that the damage that it's done in so many different ways. And there is one word which I want to use, and it's a controversial word, but I think I should use it anyway. I think it's blasphemous. I think the church has got itself into a situation which is blasphemous uh, because there are people who are created and called by God to love people of their own gender fully. And the church is saying you can't do that. Church is saying we know better than you we know better than god what's happening it's deeply destructive and i think we can go back through history and see the ways in which people have damaged themselves and more pertinently damaged other people because of enforced celibacy when it's chosen and you know it can be enriching and inspiring and wonderful but when it's enforced especially when it's enforced just because of a kind of category because you fit into LGBT or even lesbian and gay categories, I think it's terrible and has really done huge amounts of damage. And we're now in this kind of funny situation where kind of it's grudgingly accepted for lay people, but for clergy, you know, clergy have to be seen to be not a cause of scandal. And so we're in this kind of weird situation where people are treated differently depending on, on their status in the church. So we need to, we need to resolve this. Bev, Jars has used a explosive word there, blasphemous. How do you respond to that? Yeah, um, one of the great things for me about uh, being involved in the living in love and uh, faith process has been um, immersing myself in the multiple disciplines that the the, the study has um, drawn us into. You know, the church has had very um, defined views on this and... Is it part of the controlling nature of the church or, or has it been a compassionate response, genuinely believing that it's the right pathway? I'd like to lean towards the latter. My s cynical self believes that there will be overlaps, that that's life. My concern is um, always is um, how do we damage people? Um, is the church without even knowing it damaging people? And for me, it resonates of the um, of the paint on a butterfly's wings, and one of my my big concerns, um, and it has been from the day I entered into the church, is do we tarnish? Do we do we remove the paint from from people's wings? So that that brings us into tension. What living in love and faith is doing is enabling us to honestly explore what it means to be human, and this means challenging presumptions, challenging biases, inherited biases, be, doing the radical honesty stuff, asking questions, you know, recognizing there are things we don't necessarily know the answers to, or, or some of our um, inherited assumptions might just be that and might not be right. Living in love and faith enables us to get together with people who hold very different and passionate views. Um, I can see um, in, in John's situation, uh, your relationship with Shannon is, is simply life-giving to you both. There's no way I could stand on a box and, and you, you know, castigate. It would be, that, to me, that would be an abomination and potentially blasphemous. So always looking for the signs of the Spirit of God at work and what is God blessing, what is God honouring and upholding. We're still learning what this means. Remember, we've had centuries upon centuries upon centuries of inherited tradition. So I, I'm so grateful uh, to the archbishops for opening up LLF. To me personally... 
because of my particular involvement in it, um, and to, to enable the church to actually discuss and learn together, to come back to the scriptures, to come back to human experience, for people to share stories so that we can truly um, listen and, and question ourselves as well as uh, explore questions together. Jill Doff. I, w- I would, would think about it differently. Um, I do see Jesus saying that um, that sort of creation ordinance. And um, so he does this thing with this incredible vision of what the fullness of life could be, and yet a massive, massive welcome, and how he holds those two together are incredible and when the church has not been welcoming, then we're not following Jesus. Because of the LLF, we've looked at scripture um, in, in detail on these on this t- topic. And, not, and as a church, not just the Church of England, but through history as well, um, there's been a unique authority given to the place of scripture. And in a context where it was so much more per- sexual permissive than where, where we are now in our, in our um, 20th, 21st century culture, there was... Um, uh, just boundaries put on what was what was um, thought ap- appropriate in a, in a married state. So I, I do see things differently to Giles, and I think being able to be honest about how we see these things differently has been a plus for me about LLF. We're trying to discern the will of God, aren't we? And uh, that's what it's that's mm. that's what um, Giles was speaking about in his um, in his story too. Yeah, I mean, I think this has been the whole. The whole living in love and faith process has kind of demonstrated, you know, I think when I was younger and I was an LGBT activist, I used to speak to people who disagreed with me within the church. And I believe that, you know, we could have a really good conversation and then they change their minds. Um, and, you know, that ain't happening. And I don't think, you know, however many times I spoke, to, I speak to Jill, I don't think she'd change her mind. But I think we've learned, you know, to live in love and faith with each other over the, over the past few years. And I've really enjoyed that relationship. So the challenge for us, you know, as a church is how we can live in love and faith with these deeply held convictions, which are so diametrically opposite. And I guess that's that's the next stage of this whole process. I think Giles has generously sum- summarised those those creative tensions, actually. Mm. And um, I th- I'm just the words of Jesus, you know, d- judge and it's and, you know, the same measure you judge others will be judged to you. And I think there's been a lot of judgment one way. <laughs> um, and um, I'm conscious of that. On a, on a personal level, doesn't, doesn't that lead to a sense of heartbreak for you both? That, that there can't be the common ground? We, we live in tension with lots of different heartbreaks, but there's, there is a sense of just living with things that we disagree with and um, seeing through a mirror, a glass darkly. For me, the point about Jesus is that he didn't really try to get people to change their minds. He got people to be themselves. And I think the Christian community is both about the community and it's about the individual. We are all individuals before God, but we're also part of a community. And we don't agree on lots of things. But I think what we do agree on, or what I hope we can agree on, is that Jesus is at the heart of our lives. I think it is about living alongside one another, with Jesus at the centre and with God at the centre. So there's millions of things we wouldn't agree on, but I hope that we can find, I think this, this particular subject, you know, the reason that the church has spent so much time on it is that it's become, it's become almost a bigger issue than it needs to be somehow. And I think that's one of the sadnesses of the past 20 or 30 years that we've spent so much energy on it. It's taken on almost a kind of shibboleth quality 
that some people have said, you're this far and no further. And that's why we've got stuck on it. It's easy to sort of lump people together, isn't it? LGBTQR people and presume they're on one side of a debate. And actually, my experience is actually some of the people for whom it's most painful at the moment is people who who would say, I'm a same-sex attractor and I just don't think, I think marriage is just for a man and a woman. Um, and that the church has often been distinctive from society. I mean, we, we believe that Jesus came back from the dead, a crucified man, somehow changed the course of history. So I, I think a call to distinctiveness is not necessarily actually bad for mission and bad for... Um, uh, it can it can be, become a, shib- a shibboleth that we we must we must blend in with culture in many ways absolutely but in other ways not. I'm reading um, the Madness of Crowds by Douglas Murray at the moment, and he's got a big thing about how fast the corporate think has shifted as a culture, hasn't it? That's been it's been accelerated by um, some of our social media and just our culture at the moment, and how we discern and come to a a point that allows freedom of speech, that allows views that are different from culture is is quite an interesting one as a society. I just worry slightly about this idea of distinctiveness. And, you know, I've had this conversation with you before. Distinctiveness is fine, but not at the cost of injustice or being unloving. We just have to be really careful about saying, oh, we're called to be different if if our difference ends up being being a means of oppression. Bev Mason. We, we have different motifs for church, don't we? We often speak of the church as the living body of Christ, um, the community of the redeemed and, and all who are being redeemed. So there's this redeeming sense to what's happening within the church, uh, and we will thank God for that, because, because it's like uh, anyone that looks inward on their, their family, we can find uh, the faults and the fissures, we can see where they lie um, better than anybody. Um, but at the same time, if we look through a different lens, we'll also see the love, the blessing, the goodness, the joy, the sacrifice, the service, and, and all of this as well. And we, we can be quite binary in the way we, we look and we interpret. But what we do know is that there are enormous blessings. Um, we have uh, open table in our, in our diocese. Um, and open table is one of the fastest growing churches um, in, in the country, where people from within the LGBTQI plus are finding um, a, 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 a church family uh, and an expression of faith that, um, that honours them uh, and where they can authentically worship. So um, there's the breaking of bread, there's the prayers, there's the, the praises. Um, there's the opening up of the scriptures, there's the, the sermon, there's the gathered community, uh, and, and it's a flourishing community, typically of very broken people, where healing is taking place and where, um, where, where an honouring is happening. So, um, so how is the church going to look? We don't know, but where there is blessing, there will be more blessing. Um, that, that's the very nature of God. If God... If God is in this, if God is opening and revealing something to us, it's absolutely imperative that the church is listening to all of this. Uh, We're looking for the signs of where God is at work um, and how God is calling us as the people of God to respond to the revelation he's giving us. For some people, it's very hard. When people were face to face with Jesus as he walked the face of the earth, there were those who found him compelling. There were those who found him actually so disruptive Oh, he, he was he was nailed for it, wasn't he? So how how we engage with truth and with revelation is going to be different. So I suppose one of my concerns in terms of LLF is how people engage with the material. You know, is this another 
another exercise in us all going nowhere? Or is this another exercise where we have to defend where we stand? Or is this going to be an honest and open invocation of the Holy Spirit to guide us in the whole experience of revelation and the search, the quest for truth? Thank you very much for joining us in this podcast and my thanks to Giles Goddard, Jill Duff and Bev Mason. We have a barrel full of podcasts for you to discuss with your friends. Please do avail yourself of those. And should you wish to rate or even review this podcast, then please do. And more resources are available at churchofengland.org forward slash LLF. Goodbye. And thank you for listening.